All my bags are packed, I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up to say goodbye. So kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. I'm leaving on a jet plane. I don't know when I'll be back again. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Criterion Cast. This is episode 172. We will be looking at the legendary, the infamous, the irreplaceable Michael Bay's Armageddon. This is pine number 40. It has become a huge talking point within the collection. I can't believe we've never covered it on the show before in many years uh, that I've been doing this, that Ryan's been doing this, James has been doing this. It's, uh, it's one of those titles that kind of defines the collection, for better or worse, and I'm really eager to uh, see what you guys have to say about it, both as a Criterion release and just as a film itself, which I think is... Pretty estimable. Uh, joining me to discuss this film are David Blakesley. David, how's it going? I'm a spaceman tonight. <laughs> we all are a little bit. You guys more so because you it's late where you are, so you can probably see the stars even. Except I'm in my basement. <laughs> well, I'm sure you have some... Just crane your neck a little. How about that? Will do. Uh, we also have Ryan Gallagher. Ryan, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for inviting us all to do this tonight. And returning for the second show in the row, making this a bit of a record since his golden days, James McCormick. I know, right? It's like I might as well go drill for some oil right now, too. I'm sure the puns and jokes will be flying fast throughout this whole episode. As I said, this is uh, spine number 40. It has the shortest description I've yet contended with here, but Criterion describes it as such. Bruce Willis and an all-star cast of roughneck oil drillers blast off on a mission to save the planet in Michael Bay's doomsday space epic. That one sentence kind of says it all. Uh, this was the biggest hit of 1998, and even though I was, you know, of movie-going age, I didn't see it until I was into college, actually, and pretty instantly fell in love with it. I watched it about seven times over the course of a summer and teared up each time. I, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into our thoughts on the film and whether it has a place in the collection at all, but I love this movie top to bottom, and even watching it again, even listening to the commentary track without even watching the movie, I teared up at a few scenes. This film just completely gets to me through and through. I think Michael Bay put together a rousing epic that speaks to the heart and to the stirring of the excitement. But uh, Ryan, you were pretty quick to jump on this. That's actually where David and James, I should say. But uh, since Ryan doesn't join us as often, it's uh, I always am curious about what uh, draws him into this. So why why this? Why did, why did you have to join us for this one? Well, going way back to the beginning days of the podcast, this title came up in conversation between Rudy, me, Travis, uh, many, many times. There were several guests who would constantly ask when we were doing the Armageddon episode and if they could be on it. And fortunately, we didn't invite any of them uh, onto this episode, but we kept holding it off. Like We kept putting it aside saying, this is something we need to save for a special occasion we need to save it for an anniversary episode. We need to save it for, you know, like one of our big numbered episodes, you know, like episode 100 or something like that. And it just never lined up correctly with when we were uh, planning on recording or when we thought like, well, we should save it a little bit longer. You know, it's like maybe we haven't quite earned the right yet to discuss this film on the podcast. And, you know, there are other Criterion Collection podcasts out there that have already done this, but I feel like we, I've been wanting to save this for something special. And then at, the, at a certain point, once I kind of drifted away from doing these main episodes uh, regularly, I, uh, I felt like, oh, no, did we, did we lose our chance to discuss this episode or this film in the podcast? And luckily, I knew that you were such a, f- a fan of it that it wouldn't really ever go away. Like, we would always eventually talk about this film, uh, just so long as we kept doing the podcast long enough. And I'm so glad that we're finally here together to do this. It has been a real joy, and I totally mean that seriously, to watch this release over the course of the last few weeks, to watch it with the various commentary tracks on the um, on the disc to watch other Michael Bay films. Like last night I was watching some of Pearl Harbor. I also went and rewatched Deep Impact and I've been watching a lot of other kind of disaster movies uh, just to get in the in the mood of, of Armageddon. 
Um, I do have a brief opening statement in addition to what I just said, um, kind of jumping off of what you mentioned, Scott, just because I feel like this movie deserves it. If, if, if any movie deserves uh, a, a long uh, preface to its inevitable discussion, it's, it's this one, just because this movie is so contentious. It is, it is hated. It is loved. Uh, it is like constantly discussed. One thing that is amazing to me about this film is just how frequently uh, it is brought up as a point of, well, the Criterion Collection isn't that special because they have Armageddon or just because they have Michael Bay movies in general. And I think we, you know, we all see this on Criterion's Facebook page. If you do any searching on Twitter for people replying at the Criterion Collection, they will constantly over the, you know, up until, you know, recently, like people still do this. They'll just say like, why do you have the why do you have Armageddon in the Criterion Collection? Or, you know, it will just pop up in in random conversations amongst people who have maybe only heard of the Criterion Collection, you know, in, in very briefly, or you know, like kind of they they're just slightly aware of it, but they'll they'll know that Armageddon is in this collection. You know, to me, and and I'll just maybe generate some flack, but when I hear somebody or read somebody griping about Armageddon and the Criterion Collection, especially if they're posing or put it, you know, presenting themselves as some kind of cinephile or art house film snob or whatever. To me, that's that's really sort of a sign that you're kind of new to this <laughs> or, that, or that you're you're a bit of a dilettante or something because anybody who's really looked at the Criterion Collection or even, you know, checks out the disc itself, there's plenty of evidence offered in the in the notes, in fact, Michael Bay in the commentary track starts off just by raising that very question. So, you know, this is this is old, settled business. It, it's not really even a point of debate. So to, to raise the objections at this point says you just haven't done your homework. Yeah, I mean, I kind of have my own three reasons that I kind of assembled this afternoon and thinking about the question, which, as you said, is kind of long when settled. I was going through the old Criterion Forum posts and this is something that even like 2005, 2006, they're like, yeah, people just get over it. It's it's there. What are you going to do? Um, but I, it, as we've said, it keeps getting raised. You know, you don't have to look too far to find articles, even the last couple of years that raise the question. So for me, Criterion's uh, general reason has always been that it's an example of a type of big studio blockbuster and they're trying to represent, you know, all of cinema in some way. And I think that's a fine enough reason but that's also ignoring the fact that Criterion does release their fair share of big, dumb genre movies. I mean, they have The Blob in the collection, too, and it's not like this movie is demonstrably dumber than The Blob. It just happens to be more recent, and so it can't be approached with the same level of kitsch, I guess, or whatever it is that makes people okay with The Blob, or the Monsters and Mad Men set, or Robinson Crusoe on Mars, or even stuff like Night Train to Munich or Foreign Correspondent, which are kind of big spectacles in their own way. And then for the third reason, uh, you know, it's a pretty auteurist work in and of itself. It demonstrates individual style, personality, worldview, and a kind of narrative that Michael Bay keeps telling again and again of, uh, you know, uh, rather regular guys going up against big government machines. This is a story he's somewhat obsessed with, and he admits it much in the commentary. And so for me, yeah, I mean, beyond the fact that I love this movie top to bottom and think every movie I love should be in the collection. I think this lines up pretty well with the kind of movies they put out. I think people have this idea, and this is something that we've said, you know, for years now, but, um, it, you know, people have an idea of what the Criterion Collection is based on the, based more on the art house side of things and like the classic cinema, you know, Seven Samurai, The Seventh Seal. And so when they look at something like Armageddon, they don't really think of, um, Criterion's mission statement, which they kind of clearly state and have for a long time, saying that you know these are like important contemporary and classic films, uh, and that imp that word important can mean different things obviously to different people. Um, but it's kind of their get out of jail free card, where they don't say like, oh, we're only releasing classic, uh, you know, art house cinema, or we're only releasing classic types of movies, or you know, uh, classic foreign films or whatever. Um, that word important can mean, you know, different things to all the different producers at the Criterion Collection. And uh, it's so subjective that, but people who often are like, why is Armageddon in the collection? They don't, I guess they, they must just forget that that word is like a key phrase or, you know, a key word in that sentence. James, do you have anything to add to the great debate or do you want to kick off things on the film itself? Well, that, I mean, I was trying to think how to start because 
I'll go for I'll go for the, from the negative to the positive. Where when I started this film in 1998, you know, I went you know opening weekend, and I'll be honest, I hated it. I hated this film so much because it was <laughs> to me why I hated like Hollywood films. Like I was a pretentious 18 year old. I was like, what the hell is this? You know, I was like the one guy going like, oh, Deep Impact's better because look, it's it's not trying as hard. And, I you know, was that and, guy and, too, you know, James. Right, right. You know, I know, and, and it's and it's weird because like now looking back, I'm like, like, wow, I was just so close-minded, because I was in the whole Bay, the Bay hate camp. You know, like, ugh, Michael Bay. You know, all he does is quick shots. And and don't get me wrong, watching it again, like, it's the the Bay mannerisms that sometimes irk me, but yet a little twinkle in my eye, but also some of the uh, little race little racist things that kind of occur throughout his films and some of the sexist things that he still does to this day, which kind of irk me. But over the years, as I've like, you know, watched this criterion edition of this, which is still a fantastic edition. And that commentary tracks, one of my favorites, I've grown to actually really like this film. Like I don't love it, but I really like it, which is considering going from like actual, like spew, you know, spew filled hate of just like, ugh. But I never actually want, and that was the funny thing. Even when I dis disliked and hated this film, like early on when Criterion put it out, I bought the DVD right away. I still bought it because I'm like, well, even though I disliked this film so much, I want to see why Criterion would put this in. And then watching all, you know, the little features and like seeing the comments, you know, listen to the commentary track from all like the scientific people and just the weird, you know, commentary track with Michael Bay, like. David said, starting it off like, why is there a Criterion edition of Armageddon? He even asked that question, but it makes perfect sense why there's a Criterion edition of this film. It's the perfect snapshot of like mid to late 90s blockbuster of Hollywood, and it gets so much of it right. Um, the CG still looks pretty great, actually. Like, like even though this is like a DVD on my TV, I'm like, oh, this actually looks better than some films from the last few years, CG, and all the practical effects, like all the miniatures and all the, it's just stuff that I've, you know, looking back, I'm like, how did I not like this film when I saw it? It, had, it has everything that I love when Big Hollywood gets it right, which is, let's just, you know, just go full force and blow stuff up and just have fun with this thing. And like, you know, Michael Bay's famous for that where you know people ask him questions i think even ben affleck asked him the question of like well why would it be easier to teach <laughs> yeah. oil drillers to be astronauts than astronauts to be oil drillers and then michael bay just basically told him to shut the hell up <laughs> don't worry about it okay <laughs> don't worry about it and but i love that it's come on that's like a comic book that you know comic books don't always have to make sense you know cartoons don't always have to make sense and Armageddon doesn't necessarily have to make sense, but yet all the pieces and all like the heart and, you know, like Scott said too, watching it again this past, like, you know, a couple of weeks, I was getting misty eyed like crazy. I guess it's the old age and just like everything just hits a certain nerve now, but like the whole thing just, you know, Bruce Willis, oh, like I was just like tearing up. I'm like, oh my God, what have I become? I'm, I'm crying <laughs> during a Bruce Willis film. I'm, I think I was also crying because. This this is probably one of the last films that Bruce Willis is actually to me like that star like of that gave a crap for a film like he's emoting throughout this film he's like so charismatic he's great and also what other film would have Michael Bay demand that Ben Affleck get new teeth made for a film for twenty thousand dollars because he thought he had baby teeth which I think is such a crazy thing to think about but yet i always wondered why his teeth looked weird in this film it's because michael bay didn't like his baby teeth so that's an auteur right there that's well, well yeah that's, that's you know just, michael michael just, bay is full right. you know of it and i that's why like i always had this love-hate relationship with him but over the years besides pearl harbor which i still i don't like that film that that's a film i have not grown to love at all but every other film i have grown to either well and the the sequels to the Transformers films, but um, <laughs> but I don't I don't think about those at all. But everything else I either love or really like. And yeah, for all the haters, like like even myself, eighteen year old James, 
I, I, you know, just shut up, just watch the film and just enjoy it. You know, and we haven't even covered the film yet, but yet I'm telling you, just enjoy Armageddon. Look at it from outside the box. Look at it as a snapshot of 1998 and where a lot of these people went either up, down, you know, like all the, you know, the people behind the scenes, Bruce Willis and, you know, like Ben Affleck now being one of the top stars in Hollywood. So it's all these little things in it. And uh, yeah, I just enjoy the hell out of it now. So I'm, I'm glad because I always hated that I missed the rock episode back. I think it was episode 41 back in the day. I missed that episode. I couldn't miss the second Michael Bay one. Yeah, this is your last chance to talk about Michael Bay in the podcast. I know. <laughs> well, maybe one <laughs> day, Bad Boys. Now. Yeah, yeah, Bad Boys 2, soon enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it might be worth to talk about some of the reasons why people hate this movie so much instead of just talking about, you know, the fact that that people do hate this movie. I mean, this movie is, you know, pretty obnoxious as far as, you know, just to play devil's advocate. I mean, obviously I've said that, you know, I like the movie, but, you know, even rewatching it, the the racist and sexist stereotypes that he puts in all of his movies, they stick out, you know, incredibly, uh, horribly well. And they, they're so obnoxious. Like, you know, the opening sequence of the film when they, when New York is attacked by the, the, the meteor shower and, you know, the, the Japanese tourists in the, in the taxi cab or, you know, the guy riding his bike with the dog. Like there's just so many obnoxious characters that he puts in there for comedic effect um that the, like those are i was just gonna say that is the one scene i won't stand up for in no small part because it contributes to the narrative like not at all none of those people come back yeah it, it it's funny to think about why he includes characters like that at all you know is it is it for comedic effect or is it to help kind of you know ground the the movie right away in a sense of um you know like or to maybe like misdirect the audience to think of that it's something that's not going to be um or you know like i think he's doing it on purpose certainly you know he's definitely creating these characters even who are only going to exist for like you know one take uh but they you know maybe it's just to help the audience kind of say like these are real people who are about to be attacked even if these are you know uh horrible uh stereotypes of people like they still kind of feel like you you've seen people like that in real life yeah i mean even though it's like the most ridiculous new york city ever it's like the stereotypical new york like a guy selling godzilla the toys on the corner like it's very what well, do you think that was a knock at the godzilla movie <laughs> yeah yeah i, I, was, yeah, I think it's referred to in the commentary yeah because i love that they also got a dog that specifically hated godzilla toys to attack those godzilla yeah, toys I, right i love dog that specifically trained for that <laughs> I, I'm amazing to me like come on that how could you not like, even, even though it uh he's uh that that scene i just hate it though because it's just you pineapple eating like come on really like and, and then, but remember, dogs never die, according to Michael Bay. Like, he, they cannot die in a movie. Yeah, you never kill a dog. That's just, it's just a cardinal rule, right? You don't kill a dog. You don't kill kids, unless it's some sort of tearjerker disease type of thing. But, yeah, you don't just cold-bloodedly blow them up. Well, you know, I, th- let me just say, I, there, there's plenty there's plenty to dislike about Michael Bay, and, and there's plenty to, you know, shred as far as some of the attitudes and sort of the even the the cultural impact of this film. I mean, I really feel like this is a this is a movie that sort of pre pre um I don't know, presage the 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 bush years and the post 9/11, you know, the jingoism and just a lot of the crap that that happened in the, in the following years. I mean, to me I just sort of see, you know, this is a this is a Rush Limbaugh Glenn Beck mentality and and I don't I I I will get political to a certain extent because I really feel like, you know, Michael Bay is he's basically just he he's he's playing to that kind of you know the the guys who had the you know the six foot flags you know off the back of their pickup truck after nine eleven and and that crowd and he he's playing to them and in fact it's met, mentioned several times in the commentaries that they're really kind of catering to the Midwest audience they they just see the the vast uh, you know hordes of of suburbanites and people who kind of uh, you know you know uh, are are pretty. You know, patriotic in a certain kind of conservative right wing sense, and 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 so I I can sort of see sort of this cultural divide where some of that obnoxiousness is kind of overwhelming to viewers of a certain uh, you know uh, political or cultural sort of background or mindset because really this this film kind of epitomizes a lot of stuff that 
that certain people hate, you know, or just or just really uh, they see the, the sort of the cultural clout or the 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 way that this mentality, this perspective influences the larger society and it does get into political issues and and how people live and 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 where the you know different cultural forces kind of get into our lives and create you know prejudice and and uh, conflict and and oppression and things of that sort so i i I definitely feel like you know this is a you know in discussing this film you you really got to bring that to the surface uh you know this is kind of like a combination armed forces recruiting video uh, Viagra ad, Super Bowl halftime show, and Fourth of July picnic, all in one thing, you know, and and so there's a certain uh, relatability to people who live in that environment and feel good about it and don't view it ironically, and for people who are sort of from a different background or don't identify with that uh, that view of life and society. Yeah, this film just kind of you know can can be pretty grating. Uh, it's also had a huge impact in terms of subsequent cinema. I mean, this is this is a film that really set the trend for a lot of the big budget kind of mindless stuff that is kind of Hollywood's main thing these days. You know, it, even though Armageddon was never franchised, it has a lot of those same elements to it. You know, just just big dumb explosions and crazy technology and you know, rapid fire editing and just, you know, it's this, this sensory barrage. But I, I feel like this is a movie that kind of, because it does rely on practical effects and, and it's, it's kind of, it is kind of the epitome of that type of film, uh, which I think has kind of been degraded by, you know, frequent imitation and it's just become so formulaic. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of formula going on here too, but comparatively speaking to me it still feels pretty fresh and emotional so yeah this this is not a flawless film or one that necessarily everybody who likes criterion should just embrace uh but i think there's a lot more to it uh to to appreciate and and to celebrate even to a certain extent and and just let it be what it is now i'm glad you brought up the political angle because i think this and the other the second highest grossing movie of 1998, Saving Private Ryan, had a lot to do with kind of making people comfortable and even eager uh, at the start of the Iraq War and at the start of the Bush years and kind of eager for that jingoistic spirit that the film kind of invents out of nowhere. I mean, one of the articles that Ryan sent to all of us uh, talked about how they have all these insert shots of like Midwest America that are not the Midwest America that's existed for like at this at the point the film was made at least 40 years probably 60 you know it's uh very much playing on the kind of iconography and the imagery of the midwest we like to imagine still exists and this kind of like heartland and kids riding around on uh, makeshift rockets and beating rugs in the wind or whatever um this whole element that isn't quite there anymore if it ever really was um but as for kind of pointing the way towards blockbuster movies, it is strange to look back on this nearly 20 years later. and It almost seems kind of quaint, you know, there's no branding here, there's no avenue for a sequel, let alone a shared universe or something. Uh, the cutting is frantic, but not so much so that you kind of completely lose track of everything. I, I mean, that was a complaint that was lodged at the movie at the time, but I've never really had that much trouble following everything, in part because I think Michael Bay cuts really well for emotion, and when he'll cut to you know, a close of a, a face screaming or something. I think of the crash of the independent shuttle uh, when they finally get to the uh, asteroid. That, that's kind of a great example of cutting so that, you know, it doesn't all quite add up, but you can really feel the emotion of that. Um, and so in that way, this is almost kind of classical in its own way. And while it has all these kind of newer, you know, I'm sure the you know, term MTV was thrown around more than once in discussing the movie in the late 90s, those kind of techniques, it's not... Uh, it's not just nonsense the way that I think something like Captain America Civil War is where none of the action makes sense and there's no emotion behind it. You know, this is, uh, I I think it really creates a, a, an energy that's really powerful. Yeah. I think, I think the, the, the dynamics, the tension of a father and a daughter and kind of, you know, that coming of age thing, uh, the, the necessity of, you know, self-sacrifice in order for the larger good. I mean, that, that's a, it's just a theme that's just kind of beaten to a pulp in, in so many, you know, heroic quest type of movies. Uh, but, but that does feel like, you know, there's some, there's some genuineness 
underneath all the bombast and 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 uh, yeah you guys have already talked about sort of the emotions and you know I, you know, I'm being a little bit older. I mean, I remember when this movie came out. I, I essentially saw it as a kids' movie. My my sons were uh, ten, eleven years old. The twins, and then you know, and and they and their friends. They had one particular friend who just watched this thing constantly. Like we'd go over to their house because we were friends with their parents, and the Armageddon's just always playing <laughs> on their TV. It's just like this thing's in an infinite loop, you know. And this kid is just, and he's all into everything. You I mean the, the jets, the rockets, the explosions, the the you know the humor even that little you know stripper scene and you know ooh, ooh for 11 year old kid that's pretty hot stuff and, and all that so you know i'm just like yeah this is just kind of a you know a movie for for boys and and overgrown boys and then that's all it was and i th- i think i only saw it once theatrically and it was like just another family event let's just go have some popcorn and watch the latest big thing and i did feel like deep impact was more about what would it be like on earth if if this huge disaster was coming down and and there was more of that sense of how are we going to cope with this whereas armageddon was really just an adventure movie you know that the time bomb is ticking and we got to get up there and we got to defuse it i mean that's basically the plot right there and you have several times, you know, where you're just you know, last second suspense, and it's just engineered to this fever pitch. But I step back and I really look at the technology and the incredible connections that Michael Bay had to get right there into NASA, into these, into these pools, and onto the launch pad of the space shuttle itself, and all these, you know, incredibly you know, classified, uh, you know, uh, jets, and I mean that that's some pretty awesome stuff just to sort of get right up there. And and I think the commentary tracks actually kind of gave me that vicarious sense of fun, like how completely kick-ass that would be to to be in the presence of all that stuff and and put this bodacious you know, awe-inspiring movie together and say yeah this is what we did in uh, 96 97 and and uh, unleashed upon the world in fact i think you know even even the making of stuff was pretty fascinating just how frantic the pace was to put this together and get it out literally the final cut just comes together a few days before it was time to launch so uh, yeah, there's an adventure and movie making aspect to all this as well. And that frantic pace is kind of uh, reflected in the film itself. There's a real urgency, not only to the cutting and the shooting pattern, but to the uh, performances. Uh, I think Bay directs his actors really well towards really pushing them uh, to really, you know, scream when they need to or just kind of express themselves in a more active way than you typically see in these movies where there's a lot of stoicism and getting the job done. But, you know, to have. Ben Affleck, you know, practically on the verge of tears when Bruce Willis makes his final decision and Liv Tyler screaming, that's my family up there and all that stuff. And probably one of the greatest uses of the single F-bomb that a PG-13 movie is allowed where uh, Billy Bob Thornton goes, this is one order you shouldn't follow and you fucking know it. And you're like, yeah, damn right, Billy Bob Thornton. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Bay was really lucky in assembling these actors when he did. You know, the film was kind of designed to be a star vehicle, then have a bunch of guys from the indie world backing him up. So to get, you know, Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck and Billy Bob and Liv Tyler and Steve Buscemi and Michael Clark Duncan and Owen Wilson, a lot of guys who were kind of, you know, coming up at the beginning of their careers or when they're, this is kind of their first big break, you know, there's a real energy to the performances that you don't always get in these. David, you mentioned that this feels like a kid's movie to you. I feel like in, in many of the video essays and, and writing that I was reading about, many people refer to the fact that Michael Bay even admits that he, or you know, and I don't know if this is how true this is really, but he says that he makes movies for 50, like teenage boys. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of like a, a cop out in a way because he, you know, he doesn't need to. And he's also kind of making it for like a stereotype of teenage boys. But um it definitely you you feel that through all of his movies, and I think he's gotten worse over time, um, you know, particularly with the Transformers films. But um, the this movie I feel like is his last like really good fun movie uh, before kind of going off the deep end into like all of his worst habits. Yeah, I, I saw the first Transformers, but I haven't really followed it. But I my, my understanding is that he's become even more kind of fascistic in his kind of the, the subtext ideology behind these movies so that in itself is like eh, i got better things to do with my time yeah i mean bay, bay has become you know like oh transformers testicles you know jokes like that like really like a robot would have testicles like come on so and it's true it's kind of like that very 
he's be, he's become a stereotype onto what people were calling him before, and that and 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 I've always thought that was sad because you could tell you know him being a music video and commercial director. Of course, like Scott, you were saying with all the quick cuts, they make sense enough that you actually can follow it. It's not like some filmmakers where they just cut and you're you lose complete. You know, you don't even know who's fighting who anymore. This all makes sense. It's just he. I don't know. It's it's you know it's it's such a weird film like where like you know the commercial aspect comes out like you know I've always wondered why. Affleck's character, you know, has a BMW, but it's because who cares? I got, well, I got it's, BMW. It's product placement, the film. Right, 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 right. But, but that's what I mean. You know, you have that while Aerosmith's playing, while Liv Tyler, you know, Stephen Tyler's daughter is the love interest. You know what I mean? Like, it's all these yeah. pieces that make sense when you go, oh, it costs 140 million dollars to make. Well, there's got to be a way to actually get that money back. So it makes perfect sense why he does it. It's just. It's so blatant now that, you know, it's almost become a joke upon itself, with, especially his films, where it's all product placement. Like, the whole film is just a commercial now. Right. You, you see a few things. I mean, there's like a General Electric and some kind of a TV product. But, it, but it's, 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 it's just flashes by and it's, it's gone. But, you know, we talked about this as a kid's movie. I think this is also kind of a, 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 a middle-aged guy's movie. Uh, not middle-aged, you know, like a 50s, 60s, but, but just a man's movie in terms of all the male archetypes that are represented in the, in the cast, you know, as they're kind of pulling it together. Uh, you know, you got, you got the, the chubby, overweight, you know, you know, comic relief guy. You got the space cadet Owen Wilson. You got the kind of sleazy Steve Buscemi character. I mean, etc. And it goes on. And so you've got you know all you know all this all this uh, platform for guys to sort of find themselves. Like which which guy are you in your own little social groups and and you know working guys. Uh, you know all the all the rivalries and and camaraderie that exists within that. Yeah, you know, who's the boss man? Who's just kind of the the grunt who does does the heavy lifting? Uh, who's the brains of the outfit? I mean, and these again, these are very common tropes in, in a lot of a lot of movies. But I think you know both the quality of the actors and kind of who and what they represent, uh, you know, as as icons themselves. Uh, whether they're new guys coming up or guys who've been around for a while and established their their kind of presence and reputation. That you know, that's just uh, I think just another you know, it's it's commercial on the one hand, but it's it's pretty. It's a pretty strong uh, communicative tool that that Bay is very good at using. Just like with his, you know, his framing, his his commercial moments, those hallmark moments, you know, where, you know, uh, you know, Ben Affleck is picking up Liv Tyler and spinning around with a glorious sunset behind her, and uh, you know, just it's like this, you know, it is it, it it's the kind the same uh, visual devices that are used to sell us products and and establish moods in the blink of an eye literally you see that image and it's working on you subconsciously i mean michael bay is a it's certainly at this stage of his career is a true genius of that and so yeah you know you can you can hate it and fight it and scorn it and snout snub it but at the same time you know i i admire the the brilliance of the craft that's that's going on here and then you know but it's it's not just that it, it gets into some pretty crazy uh, real life uh, set designs and technology and just all the all the sci-fi antics and and you know stuff going on is it's just a, a great blend of so many stimulating elements uh very rewatchable i've watched it three times this week you know both comment well actually four times now because i watched it straight up with both commentaries and i'm watching it again uh, this evening and, and it's even playing right now and uh killer killer soundtrack too i mean just you know the aerosmith tunes and all the you know all that classic rock stuff each song very well chosen for its uh for its own little moment there it is also interesting to watch the the director's cut versus the regular one which the director's cut i think this like this criterion dvd is the only place where you can watch the director's cut is that true that might be true i hadn't thought about that um, i think so but what's different yeah like i, I to be honest I, I i don't even remember what's even different so there's the shot with the, the dad with uh lawrence tierney 
when he goes to visit him, that shot is not in the theatrical cut. Yeah, I think they cut that whole scene out. And there are, there are a few other moments like that where there's just like a little bit extra, uh, you know, or there's like a scene that um, doesn't quite, you know, fit or isn't quite as necessary. And so they cut that out. But um yeah, I watched this the Criterion DVD, which you know we have to mention that this is still a non-anamorphic uh, disc, and so yeah. you have to you have to either watch it boxed or stretch it out on your TV, and uh, very unfortunate. Well, and I watched it stretched out, and I got a forty-six inch plasma, but it still looks pretty good. I mean, it's not real. I mean, some of the other you know original fifty-one Criterions do not hold up well, and you, you can't watch them on on Zoom because the pixelation and stuff will just drive you nuts. So you just watch it on the box or whatever. But this this still holds up pretty well. And I think that's another reason that this is a worthy criterion release. This is a this was a real prestige product of its time, you know? Uh I it's I think this might have been the first double disc, you know, bonus disc uh set that at least Criterion released and maybe one of the first ones ever and for a new release video, you could get the standard or you get the Criterion version. Uh, so yeah, th- this was this was state of the art stuff, and I think the the laser discs were retailing for a hundred bucks. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of companies that try to claim they invented the two disc pack. Um, so I'm never quite clear on that whole timeline. This is also kind of before. I mean, obviously Criterion kind of helped pioneer the the special effects or like the special edition of dvds and this is before disney was even really getting into special edition dvds or dvds at all really they they were still putting out vhs uh tapes in this in this era in full force and dvd was still kind of a, a you know a niche product for enthusiasts and um it, it would would criterion be able to release something like this now probably not because now these types of movies are what keep you know home video alive for big companies like you know Disney and Warner Brothers and whatnot. Yeah, big time. Uh, if it's okay, I wouldn't mind getting back to the film itself for a couple of points. Uh, one of the things, David, that you mentioned in terms of like the imagery and quickly establishing a lot of things, and I think that trickles down the casting. I, as I mentioned, I think the cast really does a really strong job of uh, sharply defining their roles almost from the second they're on screen. Uh, and the screenplay, they established the conflict so quickly within the first like 10 minutes or so. If you cut out the uh, Charlton Heston's opening narration between the uh, uh, the asteroid shower on the satellite dish and then from the moment uh, the guy runs in, he says, we have 18 days or whatever. Uh, that's, you know, it's a very sh- short, short amount of time to establish everything. And I think that's one of the things the film really excels at and just getting to these kind of quick kind of gut punch things from... You know, the asteroid being the size of Texas, that was something that Michael Bay said had to be the case, even though every one of his scientific advisors said it could be much smaller and still destroy the world just fine. He said, no, the size of Texas, people know that'll destroy the world. And he's right. We automatically know that. Yeah. And Texas, I mean, just just this that word Texas, that's a very strong cultural cue. It's not the size of Alaska. It's Texas. (laughs) Well, we all you know, we've all looked at a map long enough. We know Texas. The rest of the states might be a little fuzzy on, but Texas we know. And it's big and it's blocky and it looks like it could be an asteroid. Um, And then there's just so many other things in the movie that just kind of hit on a gut level that don't maybe make sense. But like we said, you know, just the idea that drillers would be more fitted to this than uh, astronauts, you know, on some level we're like, yeah, drilling could be an art and how much could it really take to walk around on a moon? Uh, or that people embedded in a situation know better than anyone outside of it, uh, that the bolder choice is always the better choice. It, this film just keeps going for the gut again and again and again. And uh, as much as, as we've said, that might've had negative uh, political ramifications down the line. I, I think it does make for effective drama. Yeah. And I think just, just the, the, the nerve, the tenacity, just to put this all together. I mean, this is really like three or four movies worth of, you know, set pieces in, in, in other directors' hands. He just really, it's a two and a half hour movie, but there's a, so much that goes on in it. It really is quite a, you know, a, a literal blockbuster. I did start to feel the weight or the length much more now rewatching it uh, than I had in the past. I remembered it being much shorter than it is and rewatching it now. I, I would get, you know, I'd be watching it late at night and I would get, you know, about halfway through the movie before they had even, or I'd get to like, before they had even taken off, I thought, man, I, this movie is so much longer than I remember. And I need to just skip ahead to when, you know, when some of the other stuff is, is going on towards the end of the movie. Well, the one problem I would say is that it does kind of have two climaxes, the 
whole sequence for the launch is such a good climax in and of itself that's almost a shame they even go to space you know when you get the kid going mom that salesman's on tv that's like one of the emotional heights of the movie and you don't even need anything else so but then when they do launch into space you're like oh right there's basically an entire other movie to go like we were saying some of those later special effects shots when they go to the asteroid um they they do hold up incredibly well like when they're flying around the moon going through the debris like the tail of the um of the of the asteroid itself um those shots are still beautiful i'm not as crazy about the actual landscape of the asteroid i mean whether or not it i mean obviously it doesn't look like what it would look like it's it's meant to be scary um but i still even then think that it kind of looks a little too like too much like a set yeah, it's a little overdone. And yeah, all the jagged rocks and icicles and just all the craziness that's going on. It's just why wouldn't this stuff have worn off, you know, millions of years ago? You know? <laughs> yeah, I think Affleck mentions in the commentary is like, why did the asteroid have to be evil? You know, it has this like green trail of smoke behind it and it's just like, ooh. I think it, it I think... reminds it reminds me of Fifth Element of the the, the yeah. force coming to destroy Earth. <laughs> I, re- I really like that part of it, the the fact that they try to make it evil, the fact that they give it a voice, that there's all these noises <laughs> that you hear throughout it, you know, despite being in the vacuum. Um, I also love, you know, this is mentioned, I think, in, in a video that I watched, but that there's like, you know, when they jump over the cliff, uh, there's like this giant canyon. Why didn't they just throw the nuclear devices in the giant canyon? <laughs> that probably goes down <laughs> far enough to where they were going to drill. And, you know. <laughs> well, know. also, the the... the, the puniness of this nuclear bomb i mean it's just this little thing that you know you can just kind of tote around in a suitcase i think that the, one of the nasa scientists uh on the commentary track said that thing would just be a little pop gun you know in the middle of a huge asteroid the size of, i mean and you think about it you know why when we do an underground nuclear test why doesn't the whole state of texas just kind of split in half you know <laughs> so you know it's just it's but it's it's one of those things where you know i think bay has for the most part uh, convince us to set aside our disbelief and skepticism and you know, just go along for the kick-ass ride. Well, some of those things, too, just kind of fall under the category of things you complain about when you already don't like the movie. Exactly. Uh, Kent, Kent Jones wrote a really great article on Michael Bay that I'll link to in the show notes, and he noted, you know, don't fret about plausibility. It only gets in the way. Uh, as a parenthetical to that, you know, that Hitchcock often counseled against uh, exactly that sort of fretting. And there are a lot of elements in Bay's movies that uh, were very much employed by Alfred Hitchcock, such as that uh, stretching of plausibility. And uh, with Transformers 2, people complained that they designed it around action set pieces, but that's what Hitchcock did in uh, North by Northwest, you know? And if, if this is the movie, we're really going to complain about, about there being like fire in space, <laughs> when that's been well, yeah. such a big trope for decades, you know? <laughs> Or that there's this particular second where if the if the if the asteroid splits in half, just like one right. second later, the <laughs> Earth is doomed. But you get it right before that, everything's good. We're we're just you know free free you know free and clear after after that the threshold has been you know passed. So, it, but it's it's suspense. It's it gets the tension up, and you know you know this movie's not going to end with the Earth just being destroyed. <laughs> but uh, it's it's how you get there that I guess is is half the fun. Uh, I, even even the, the 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 little death sequence, that little kind of flashback, you know, life passing before uh, Bruce Willis's eyes. Those quick cuts there, another another nice employment of uh, of that editing technique to, uh, you know, to, you know, it's it's not deep metaphysics or anything, but but there's something you know I think bigger and and deeper being said in in that moment, and uh, yeah, those th- those kind of scenes make an impact, you know, whether it's kids watching and sort of getting a sense of of how we're connected in life and and how the people who are the closest who mean the most to us, you know, really are with us even when they're not physically present. I mean, that's a, that's some good stuff there. I, I, I appreciate uh, some of that heart there, uh, even though it's kind of schmaltzy and corny, but sometimes I like a little schmaltz and corn. Uh, yeah, there's a certain warmth and humanness about all that as well. Going back to the like uh, suspending disbelief, uh, it was nice having that commentary track with the, the second commentary track with the, um, the NASA consultant and uh, the cinematographer and the asteroid consultant where they um, I think the, the one of the scientific consultants was also a consultant on Deep Impact that same year. And 
it's fun to, it's fun to have him talking and tell talking about you know oh well this wouldn't really happen and i told them that this isn't how they should do it but they didn't listen to me and so like that that commentary track is almost for those people who think like uh you know oh there's so many things wrong with this well you should just watch that commentary track and know that even people who are working on the movie and who could could have influenced or or at least tried to influence the way that this movie could have been uh, you know made more sense uh but even they are they you know even he kind of accepts what it is and knew that Michael Bay wasn't trying to go for the most realistic one he just wanted you know a little bit of uh you know a little bit of science behind it but you know it's way more emotion than than uh you know science as it should be it's a movie and uh, i think a lot of that emotion comes across as i said because of the performances because of the uh, the editing and all that but also because they make the fate of the world really matter which you don't find as much these days i think in blockbusters including based on transformers films you know fate of the world is almost like a side note it's like oh yeah by the way the world's in danger but because he keeps bringing us these shots from around the world of people kind of gathered around and watching uh the progress of the mission you really get the sense that everyone's tied together in this event and that uh all these individual people will be impacted by it and it really sells every time they say you know the mission's in jeopardy or that the fate of the world's in jeopardy or anything else you really you feel that in a fundamental way. Uh, but beyond that, that kind of gets to the end of my notes. Ryan, you sent us a doc the size of uh, an adaptation of this movie, in fact, I would say could rival the novelization. A doc the size of Texas. There you go. <laughs> is, is there anything on that that you wanted to get to? Well, I don't know. I mean, we could talk more about the the characters, but I think we've we've done that I, you know it's fun it's just i love all the little cameos in the movie uh even michael bay's own cameo when he's you know in the some of the nasa sequences when he just if you know what he looks like he just stands right out and <laughs> it, it's such a goofy funny cameo that you know it's hard to not kind of love it for what it he is he has a really intense stare in that shot too <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally uh, I love that Udo Kier is the psychologist in NASA. I mean, he is so funny and he's such a beloved uh, actor in so many movies that, you know, to have him in this one, you know, it, it kind of helps add credibility. Like like so many of the indie actors in this movie, like, you know, Steve Buscemi and um, what is uh, and uh, oh, Peter, Peter Stormare. Yeah, yeah, Peter Stormare. Exactly. Like those guys, uh, they just add so much to the movie that help, you know, uh, help me at least fall in love with it more every time i watch it well, and yeah, i think william, it, it, william fickner also yes, i yes, love definitely. oh so good he's always great yeah i mean that that's true that's kind of like why i keep going back to it for like the little characters and it's funny that um owen wilson this is one of many films in the 90s that he gets horribly killed in which is always i i've noticed this over the years i'm like wait the haunting he gets his head ripped off by a lion head uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's so weird that he just kept uh, Anaconda. He gets killed by the Anaconda, all in the span of like three years. Like he just died. Every film. Oh, Owen Wilson. Let, let's get that guy with the weird nose and kill him off. But it's just odd. I forgot that he was actually in this film. Like like watching it again, I'm like, oh, Owen Wilson. Okay, cool. And then, spoiler alert, he dies. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of surprised that they didn't get a more uh, like iconic person or actor as the president he seems kind of like a you know like a background character w way more than you'd think that a, like a michael bay character would be bay actually talked about i, th I think it was bay talked about the the perils of casting the president you know like morgan freeman was the president in deep impact you know a black president and all of that but but here i think he, he just wanted sort of a generic you know presence just kind of a, a of an authoritative man but not not one of the boss men like you see in the military guys or some of the nasa head honchos who are just you know granite chin and you know that that general guy who first shows up on the rig i mean that guy was just absolutely cast for his piercing no-nonsense stare you know but this president was a little bit more of a paternal you know not even quite you know reagan or anything like that and he just sort of wanted him to be there but but not to be a personality uh, so to speak in the film itself but i was going to say just you know some of those casting choices that you've already mentioned i think do indicate that at this stage of, of his career michael bay was also seen as an up-and-coming auteur you know i think that's another reason why criterion and and bay you know kind of had this meeting of the minds and you know bay got you know the rock first on laserdisc and then armageddon later and then of course rock came out on dvd later so people think maybe it went in the reverse order but um i i'm sure the the people at criterion at the time said wow this this guy 
guy, this kid really, I think Bay was still pretty young at this point, and he was a guy who came up as a as a, you know, teenager making his own home movies and blowing stuff up uh, you know, in his backyard and and making pretty decent quality films for, you know, the limited, you know, experience and technology and equipment at his disposal so he really was a, a prodigy in this in this uh, regard uh, but you do wonder if the commercial success and some of that uh, kind of you know political friction and, and some of just the vulgarity uh, culturally and and just attitude wise you know kind of pushed him in you know even deeper into his own sort of view of the world and maybe even led to him being rejected by some of the cinephile circles out there. So, you know, life kind of goes on and, and relationships kind of move at their own pace, especially within the film industry where I think he probably cuts against the grain in, in some ways, uh, even though he makes lots and lots of money for the studios. Uh, but it's just kind of he'd become a caricature of himself. But again, I think you go back to 1997, 98, uh, when Criterion was still just putting this package together, uh, maybe. Well, in fact, yeah. Who's who's the critic about? Weren't you tweeting about that, Scott? You know, critics who got it wrong that uh, uh, you know Michael Bay would be more highly regarded than Tony Scott or something like that. Oh yeah, that was Kent Jones actually who mentioned before. Uh, yeah, that was an article written in two thousand one, which was even after Pearl Harbor came out, and even in the article he admits that Pearl Harbor is not very good, uh, but still he was sold on Michael Bay being the guy. Uh, Ryan James, anything else you guys wanted to get to? Uh, let me see. I mean, we we also didn't talk about Keith David, who he he. Oh, got to mention Keith David. Always got to. You have to because his voice alone sells sells him any movie he's in. But... Yeah, I mean, he kind of stands in for the president yeah, in a way. Like, he does. He's like yeah. our, our you know political character in this movie. Yeah, I mean, and you know, like I want to give another shout out to Billy Bob Thornton, who is probably one of the only actors that can sell all those like cheesy lines that he has throughout. Yeah, I think he's really good in this movie. He's fantastic. Actually, what's weird about Billy Bothorn, like the little the little ticks that he gives his characters, like the little thing with his leg brace that he added on to himself. Like he wanted to, because he always likes to add a little something to his character. Like Michael Bay was like, well, why do you want to do that? He's like, you know, give him a little little backstory that you don't really need to know. It's just something that even us as the viewer go, Oh, okay. That's why he's working like on the ground because he could never be an astronaut. So it's also touching when one of the last things that you know Bruce Willis does is grab that insignia for him. It's a touching moment that, mm -hmm. like, li little nod like that. It's like you know that works. That that will always work to me as a little like you know, I don't know, just a little beautiful little thing. And I, I also the one the one thing I just wanted to bring up also. With the the scene that was put back in, Lawrence Tierney actually almost says like a line exactly from Reservoir Dogs, with like "Let's go to work," which I thought was really <laughs> weird. That even in that film, he's still it's like a weird Tarantino esque film too, like with character actors because you have Bruce Willis, you have Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, and yeah, I mean, like I like we all said, you know, it's it works. I mean, I kind of like. I love that it was originally supposed to be kind of like almost like a buddy film between Bruce Willis and Billy Buck Thornton. But when Titanic hit so big with the love story, they did the whole like, let's let's, you know, put Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler together, the younger character. And Affleck's pretty good in this, you know, for what he is like a little hotshot, a little like rambunctious. But I don't know if it's just me, but like while I like Liv Tyler, I think she just she's one of the like the weak spots of this film, like kind of. One, she's very one-dimensional. Like she has some emotional scenes, but I don't know what it is. Like she never resonates to me as much as like I don't know. Then and that might be a Bay thing. That oh, might be a yeah. Bay fault. I, I was just gonna you say, know I what I mean. I'm not gonna blame Liv Tyler. Yeah, yeah. Because thinking about it, it it has to be a Bay thing because every time he has like female like you know characters at all, they're very just like like eye candy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. In this are, are they hot or not? Yeah, that's right. It. Exactly. Yeah, and in this movie, she is treated as like, well, you know, at the end when uh, when Bruce Willis says, you know, I'm gonna, I, you can take care of my daughter, like that that line in itself, you know, oh, it seems so, you know, sweet and emotional, and he's a good dad, but it's like, you know, here's my here's my daughter, and you are now allowed to have her, and she oh, is now and she is now yeah. yours. It reeks with patriarchy. I mean, it really does, and and it's again, th those are those little friction moments where 
yeah, it, you, you sort of stop and think. I was like, yeah, that's kind of a, a chauvinistic, piggish thing <laughs> to say, you know, to you know, kind of give your daughter away. But but as they said, this that attitude resonates with a huge chunk of the audience that uh, Michael Bay and Bruckheimer were were aiming at. I mean, this was a very calculated commercial decision to say we're gonna we're gonna you know put some of those uh, kind of buzzwords and stuff in there. And uh, that's another just just sort of reinforces that love it or hate it uh, aspect of the film. Yeah, and her whole character arc is like slowly being uh, infantilized. She, she starts out as basically like the business end of the company, and she's like totally capable and making her own decisions and totally on her own. And then the more she gets involved in this whole mission, you know, it kind of leads to that scene where she's playing with animal crackers, and then. You know, one of her final scenes in the movie is, you know, saying, Daddy, I don't understand what's happening. And it's just a, it's an uncomfortable arc. And I don't think, yeah, I mean, aside from some individual moments, which I mentioned before, I don't think Liv Tyler sells it especially well. And part of that, I'm sure, is the atmosphere Michael Bay creates on set. I think one of the reasons he gets such good performances out of his male actors, because he creates a real kind of macho environment where they can kind of riff and make fun of each other and kind of bond in the way that men tend to, which leaves then the one woman in the cast well out of that process. Yeah, and Kurosawa, it could be sort of some of those same charges leveled at him, although I think his humanism is definitely much more accessible. But, you know, these are guys who make guy movies, really, and the women are kind of a a little prop to, to be worked around for various purposes. Uh, well, David, anything we didn't get to? Uh no, you know, I, I guess I think we've covered the controversy. I think there's there's definitely things to, to enjoy about it. I think we've we've covered all of that. Um, I I think it's definitely a, a a piece of Criterion's history, and maybe that's that's the last thing I'll have to say. It was it was a it was a time when Criterion was a very different company than it is now. Uh, we're not going to see the Blu-ray upgrade of Armageddon come to the collection. I don't think you know ever because you know they've moved on and you know as Ryan said the studio has the studios have different strategies for releasing these things um and I'm not, I'm not sure really that Armageddon has gone down as sort of the the pop culture classic that I think it could be and partly that's just because Bay has become kind of a you know a, a trash director in a lot of people's eyes and and even for the audience that you know originally you know, consumed Armageddon and made it the biggest movie of the year, they've all kind of moved on to the latest, greatest things, and it's just sort of been left behind in the dustbin. So I see it as a relic of kind of that, you know, like James said, that late 90s boom of uh, where where the effects and the, the science and the, the editing and the pacing had just kind of reached a new level. I mean, this is also the same time as, you know, films like The Matrix were coming out, where all of a sudden the you know the the hyper uh pacing and and the and just the the intensity of things really did seem to sort of kick into this kind of um i don't know surrealist or not surrealist in the classic sense but but there was there's just this kind of this intensity that some of the fantasy epics from from you know earlier years couldn't quite match so this was kind of a breakthrough into a new a new level of of um you know escapist filmmaking and now we're sort of in an era where that that style has sort of become so dominant in the marketplace that may, maybe people are a little bit sick of it. Uh, so you sort of have to regain some innocence to come back and look at a film like Armageddon and say, yeah, this was back when that kind of thing was, was kind of fresh and exciting and, and innovative. Uh, I think we're sort of at a lull point waiting for the next big breakthrough and kind of, you know, escapist uh, fantasy based filmmaking and uh, we'll have to see what uh, our wizards are capable of coming up with in the years ahead does anyone have any final thoughts on the release itself i i really like the cover design i think that simplicity is kind of uh, striking and effective and i always liked it sitting on the shelf especially it pairs well with the rock obviously but it, on its own i think it really makes a good case for it yeah, it's. I mean, it's so minimal compared to like the the extravagance of what's contained inside. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a little surprise when you open it up, and then it just blows up in your face. But, <laughs> but I mean, I'm, I'm I'm gonna leave I'm gonna leave off with my favorite line in this movie and many movies, which is, "He's got space dementia." <laughs> I love that line so much because it's just like, what? 
Like we all know okay. it's that common yeah. condition, you know. Yeah, you know, and I love that it's William Fickner saying that about Steve Buscemi. So it's great. I mean, Steve Buscemi is a weird character in this film. I, I it's a weird recurring joke, but I'm not gonna get into that. That I kind of like cringe at about the whole like, age thing. Yeah, like yeah. It's like a little. It's because it, at first I'm like, oh, once okay, maybe it'll, and it's twice, and it's like. Really, but then he then I don't don't worry because now he's with a stripper at the end, so it's okay. <laughs> She's of age, so it's okay. But yeah, so he, he but, cleaned up his act. So. <laughs> yeah, that's his redemption he, at the end of the movie. He got with a stripper. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what it is. <laughs> uh, Ryan, any final thoughts? Yeah. So um, for listeners out there who want even more uh, up to you know uh, consume regarding Michael Bay and uh, Armageddon, there are lots of great video essays out there. Uh, in particular, for anyone who you know enjoys uh, every frame of painting, Tony Joe he did the uh, "What Is Bayhem," where he really breaks down the stylistic choices that Michael Bay uses, as far as like you know that that one shot that he uses over and over again, where he likes you know. Uh, pans around a character you know, he's spinning around he's also like the characters are kind of at an angle he's moving up um he breaks that down and also compares it to some of the people who try to imitate that and his video is great and so i would definitely recommend anyone out there go check that out um there are also lots of other fun little videos on youtube that i was finding as i was looking for you know trying to come up with reasons why people hate michael bay's movies so much there's this website watch mojo that does lots of top 10 videos almost every day and they did one about why people hate michael bay and so they run down a list of 10 reasons why and that one you know for the haters out there that is just like you know okay here's here's a list of uh of talking points that you could use anytime anyone brings up why they like michael bay you could say well well, look, here's the reason, here are all these reasons why you shouldn't like him. Um, and then there are lots of, you know, if you want, I'll try to, uh, I'll send some links to Scott so he can uh, include them in there. But, you know, one of my favorite uh, scientists, Phil Plate, he does the Bad Astronomy blog, I think over on Slate these days, but he's done it, uh, you know, he's been blogging for years about science and um, he kind of notoriously hated Armageddon and talks about it whenever he can. But uh, it's always fun to hear him talk. He, you know, he, also kind of goes to, to Comic-Con and he's a big sci-fi geek, but he just hated all of the scientific inaccuracies uh, with this movie. Um, it was funny also real quick that I, we didn't touch on this, but there was a moment a few years ago when it seemed like there was a, a bit of an interview taken out of context with Michael Bay, where he, uh, where, where many headlines read that Michael Bay apologizes for Armageddon. And this turned out to not be the case. And Michael Bay uh, would later go and clarify what he meant. But it was fun that this movie still, even, you know, within the last few years is talked about in a way where, you know, it's it, people think like, oh, well, Michael Bay looks at back at this as uh, or, you know, anyone, any reasonable person would look back at this and, and see it as like the kind of cultural, uh, you know, poison as that it is. Um, but, you know, he went back and said, no, I don't apologize for it. And uh, it's great. But yeah, other than that, I mean, I'm so glad that we finally got to talk about this movie tonight. And thanks, guys, for for you know agreeing to do it this late in the evening. I'm glad that I was able to uh, join in on the conversation. Um, yeah, I, I this is definitely a movie that I will keep going back to rewatch. I you know, despite all of the you know problems that Michael Bay exhibits in his films, it is fun, and it's it's hard to deny. Um, once you kind of let go of like your you know, problems with the science or your problems with Michael Bay as, as a person or, you know, any political or uh, elements in this movie, you know, you can just sit back and watch it and, and enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, I obviously agree wholeheartedly. This is a film I've seen probably a dozen times at least. And I, I was a little weary, you know, with my busy viewing schedule and working schedule and all that, making time for a two and a half hour movie isn't always easy. And I was like, oh, I've seen this movie so many times, so I really need to watch it again. And as soon as I pop it in, just can't resist it. It's ate it all up practically in one go. Um, as long as we're mentioning further reading, I'd also recommend people check out uh, Kevin B. Lee's video essay tr called Transformers the Premake, which is a really, really interesting look at just kind of the cultural impact of these kind of big movies these days and makes a good kind of epilogue to what we've been talking about as far as like this movie kind of pointing the way to what's to come in blockbuster filmmaking. Uh, so I'll put a link to that and everything else that Ryan's mentioned in the show notes. Uh, definitely go through them. There's a lot of even though the movie may seem simplistic on so many levels, there's a lot of good writing and video essaying that's come about as a result of Michael Bay's films. It's really well worth diving into. Uh, but beyond that, thanks everyone. Thanks to you guys for joining me, and thanks everyone for listening. 
Uh, not sure what the episode will be on next. It'll hopefully come a lot sooner than this one has since the last episode, but uh, part of creating so much new content for the Criterion Cast feed is meant uh, every now and again we miss a month with an episode. And hopefully you guys enjoyed the Jacques Rivette episode and all the, uh, what do we call them, the monthly recaps of the Criterion releases. The Chronicles. And all Chronicles, that's, I couldn't think of the word just now. Uh, but yeah, hopefully you guys have been enjoying all that, and we'll catch you next time one way or the other. So thanks. Good night. Stay awake just to hear you breathing. Watch you smile while you are sleeping. While you're far away dreaming, I could spend my life in this sweet surrender. I could stay lost in this moment forever. Every moment spent